The reason why the story in Acts is so important is because its relevance extends to all aspects of life. In Omer's talk, he discussed how the gospel is far from anti-intellectual, going so far as to quote and engage with the known and popular pagan philosophies and ideas of that culture. And in a world of gender bias and stereotypes and even patriarchy, the mention of prominent women engaging and responding to the gospel is a truly astonishing fact, uh, definitely back then, but it is also quite relevant for us today and should inform our practice and our faith. So I wanted to interview Omer a little bit more because of his work in social psychology, because the redemptive way forward in both of these issues is going to require a deeper understanding of the psychological forces that are at work. And hopefully, by understanding those dynamics, we can be true to the original movement of Jesus and be profoundly progressive, redemptive, hopeful, and rescuing in our application of that faith in today's context. So, I hope you enjoy a little bit of follow-up. Here's my interview with Omer from his sermon, Mars Hill. Hey, thanks for uh, doing this little conversation. So first of all, thank you again for sharing. And um, always appreciate you uh, taking some time out and sharing your expertise. So just to follow up from your message, I want to ask a couple questions because your um, the take on it, which was so fascinating about Acts 17, was that you had done two things in one, which was intellectualism and then women, mm-hmm. which um, was fascinating because the at least the women piece felt like there was an anti-intellectualism even in the intentional translations, right? right? So you have all these uh, dynamics going on. And so one of the first questions that that kind of emerged in my mind was, given your background in social psychology and uh, other work and study, is there actually some sort of genetic or biological inclination that women may have towards a more uh, open and receptive intellectualism? Um, more than men? And is that all part of why? Because translations have been done primarily by men. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a predominantly patriarchal system that's at play through the translation of the Bible, etc. There's the very famous male ego and pride, which may be more mythology than actual biology. But anyway, so I'm just kind of curious if you have any insights into the relationship between intellectualism and gender, and if there is anything, or or if I'm just sure, yeah. crazy. It was, I mean, that's a that's a really interesting idea. When uh, when before you you said you had a question about the relationship between intellectualism and women, I did not anticipate th- <laughs> that particular question. So that that was interesting. And um, I was thinking about it a couple different ways. Um, one, I think that it speaks to my area uh, of expertise. So in, in social psychology is, um, you know, the, there's a way that uh, psychologists talk about a personality trait called openness to mm. experience. So it's one of the what's called the big five personality traits. Probably the most famous one of those is introversion and extroversion. Right. So most people are familiar with right. that one. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of the personality science that's out there is junk. But in the in the world of good uh, academic peer reviewed research, there is this uh, personality 
characteristic called openness to experience and people just vary. So some people are just more open to new experiences than others. And there's two ways that the research uh, divides that. So two subcomponents and one is actually it's openness to ideas. So it's Mm -hmm. intellectual openness. And then the other one is experiential openness. So Mm -hmm. that's openness to, to new experiences. And, um, there has been some research on whether that varies by gender or not. And uh, I reviewed it just, you know, just to make sure that I, I, I could speak uh, credibly on this. <laughs> and so it looks like it, there isn't really uh, like a, a in, in aggregate, there's no relationship between gender hmm. and, uh, and openness to um, new ideas or, or experiences. It does seem though that, um, there is some variation country to country. So mm. in some countries, you'll see a dynamic where maybe, uh, you know, women are more open to uh, new experiences and men either are not or maybe men are more open to um, uh, new ideas or mm. so- something like that. Mm. But but in aggregate, it tends to wash out. And so, you know, it, it's funny when you think of what's going on in acts that where it seems like the women are more open to are disproportionately open to uh, the gospel um, from what you would expect. Uh, to me, a, a good explanation has always been just to think of the social implications yeah. of the good news, yeah. where um, you know it's obvious throughout the gospel of Luke and Acts that because of the good news's ability to uh, bring in disenfranchised people mm-hmm. that, you know, women and children and slaves would have uh, been more receptive to it. And you, you see Luke emphasizing that right. as he's trying to make a point that that this good news movement is inclusive. And then you see that bear out historically as well. So that would be my guess as, uh, as what's going on over any kind of uh, like in individual or personality traits. Um, but it is interesting to think about. So, so when you say there's a difference in culture, so like... Um... Take maybe a Western culture versus an Eastern culture, or um, an industrialized culture versus a non-industrial. You, you're saying that there happens to be some enculturated traits that happen across gender lines regarding openness to ideas. Sure. Yeah. Or uh, yeah. Exactly. And at the very least, it seems like that um, whether a gender, a particular gender, is more or less open. Uh, to experiences, it is influenced significantly mm. by culture, mm. and um, you know that that's not surprising in in parts of the world where women um, aren't given access to right. education as right. well. Just and there's no expectation for women to right. be intellectually curious. It's not surprising then when in that particular culture you find that men are more uh, have are higher on intellectual openness right. or not. But it seems like when you can control or equalize those differences, right. you know, well, like provided that everyone's equally educated and stuff like that, that those differences tend to be much smaller. So I, I still think that's incredibly important and powerful because I, I think a lot of people utilize their observation of gender differences right. as kind of a baseline truth or right. well see i'm just looking at the way men act and the way that women act and therefore it, that must be true right. but the deeper uh psychology of it or the deeper sociology of it is that is what you're observing because there's been in particular values that have enculturated particular genders for certain roles or certain ways of behaving exactly. right yeah so that's right and you know given that given those norms and what we know about the norms in the early church or in you know in the first century world it's all the more surprising and meaningful right. that women played such a huge role right. in the early Jesus movement yeah it makes the 
uh, it makes the movement that much oh, more ab- powerful, absolutely. right? Yeah. Um, much more poignant. And, okay, very, yeah. very cool. Okay, so my next question was, um, this is this takes place at the Areopagus at mm-hmm. Mars Hill, the place where all the the great philosophers of the day are going to yeah. sit around uh, the coffee right. table and talk shop and uh, <laughs> outdo one another with their erudition, right? right? So <laughs> this is this is what they're going to be uh, be doing. Yep. And uh, it's so it is. It's just so brilliant that the the movement of Jesus is not just for um, people who are. Uh, simple, but it's it's for everybody of right. all sorts of different intellectual capabilities and uh, inclinations and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So there's a, I guess, a two part question. We're in Palo Alto, uh, mm-hmm. Mountain View area. Uh, you work at Apple. We're in Silicon Valley, and so my question is: Are there similarities, or would you equate our current location where we are? And I'm sure there's other places around the world that we could probably um, utilize as well. Uh, referred to as well, but would you equate Silicon Valley and then, of course, Stanford and Santa Clara University, right, as our modern-day Areopagus? Um, how and why or why not? Sure. Yeah. Now, this this is a, the kind of question I, I have thought about, and um, you'll – I mean, it, it's particularly relevant because of Stanford and, um, you know, also just because of, of working at Apple and how we think about what technology does in our lives. Um, so, so I, let me uh, list some of the attributes of the Areopagus that stand out to me, and then mm. we can think about whether we think that characterizes uh, Stanford and Silicon Valley mm. and places nice. like it or not. Nice. So, the ones that stand out to me when I when I read Acts uh, would be one is you see the Areopagus is a, it's a center of teaching and learning, so it's a literal marketplace of ideas. Mm. Uh, another one is there's this structured exchange of vetting new ideas, right? There's, there's like a, you know, you, you can, can bring Paul forward to, to mm, address them. And, right. you know, there's some level of organization to it. So not just anybody can show That's, up exactly. and spout off That's any right. craziness. Exactly. Right, right. And, uh, and there's also, there are members of this, this group. So right. in other words, there are people who devote, uh, are like are specially devoted to, to this task of, of being in this marketplace of ideas. So based on those three attributes, um, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like academia. Right. And that could characterize Stanford, but that could characterize really like any you know, tier one research university right. in this country. Right. And, um, and I have felt that for a long time, like even, even before we moved out here. Um, you know, I've, I've been an academic researcher. I was for seven years Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I had many, uh, friends in our churches back in central Illinois tell me that I was in, that I was working in the modern day Areopagus. Mm. So you've had people actually made that connection. Exactly. And, uh, and in particular, they have brought it up with that jab, like the, the (laughs) whole thing, uh, sitting around doing nothing, doing nothing, but, uh, exchanging new ideas as, (laughs) as, uh, Luke is describing it in Acts and cause they would perceive it that way. In particular, I get, I used to get that comment when, uh, when they realized that my major or my area of study was the social sciences. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a STEM field, which, you know, some Americans, I guess, have placed more value on. So I was yeah, in the yeah. science, the social sciences and humanities world. And so I think all the more people were like, well, what can, what do you do with that? What's the value of that? You're like those people in the area because who sit around doing right. nothing, just exchanging new ideas. And be, it's because of that, like, especially that, that, that emphasis that 
um, especially a lot of people who are critical of, you know, intellectual circles like that, because there's this emphasis on sitting around doing nothing mm-hmm. but exchanging ideas that in those ways, sometimes I don't think that it can characterize Silicon Valley as mm. a whole, uh, mainly because even yeah. like many Americans, even ones who t- might be more on the anti-intellectual spectrum, they they really value what like companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, what they've done, um, because right. they can see the tangible effects of how it has like you know amazingly improved their lives, and uh, and so they they kind of give tech a pass mm. in some way. But they won't give academia a pass. Mm. They will still um, perceive that as the place where nothing really of value happens other than uh, professional idea debaters just debating with each other. Mm-hmm. And that, so that's where what I thought, like to me, that uh, that was where the connection more was, like right. with, with academia. Yeah. So if uh, so, I think I would agree with you. And I think that's very uh, insightful. Um, at least recognizing academia, not necessarily Silicon Valley. Right. So we have academia within the context right. of Silicon That's Valley, right. but uh, obviously Silicon Valley is much more, um, much bigger and broader than that. Um, technology entrepreneurship. Right. So, uh, so uh, the the follow up question is: If that then is true, which we are uh, essentially saying, there's a lot of parallels between right. what Paul, the location of the Areopagus, and at least what was going on in that particular day, and what is happening in our day, which is really uh, in some ways, um, we've inherited that very same right. uh, yeah, yeah. thing, and we're just simply perpetuating it just in our, our day. Um, can you elaborate more on what do you think, then, for somebody who's a follower of Jesus, is the strategy or an equivalent strategy from Paul? So you mentioned he quotes a poet, he quotes a philosopher. Right. Um what what would be the equivalent strategy for us today? Sure, yeah, and I think one of the things too is is that's helpful is to first even clear out a misperception that sometimes I I even have I have to remind myself uh, and that maybe a lot of other people have too is maybe we walk around with the perception that Silicon Valley worships technology and science to the exclusion of religion mm. or or spiritual ideas and that's you know to to have this idea that silicon valley is inherently hostile to you know, to spiritual truths and um i i don't think that that's necessarily true i think that they're hostile to some spiritual truths uh mm. and a lot of times rightfully so um <laughs> and right. uh, one of the ways that that uh it dawned on me ju- like just how open um, Silicon Valley can be to to ideas about spirituality, even from the most scientific among us, uh, comes from uh, the HBO show Silicon Valley. I, I don't know if you have seen it, but uh, I think I've uh, only seen a trailer or oh, a preview. Okay. It, one, is, so. it is a it, it's shocking how how much it feels like home that show, uh, just because it it just excellently parodies uh, our world and. Um, our little world. And uh, the the uh, CEO, the character who's a big famous CEO on that show, the character's name is Gavin Belson. He has a spiritual guru uh, by hmm. by his side to like basically it's his life coach or whatever. And then, you know, it, it, through through that that uh, 
guru, you you get an insight into all of the very interesting, sometimes seemingly crazy spiritual ideas that a lot of these tech leaders are willing mm-hmm. to entertain because they're looking for some kind of guidance in life that they're not finding uh, in their, uh, you know, just in, in their scientific understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, that's true of a lot of people. I think um, there are a lot of people, you know, e- even at Apple, who are intrigued by the spirituality behind things like meditation, mm-hmm. mindfulness, even, you know, alternative medicine is big out here. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, even if that's not a credible science, it just speaks to this people's willingness to, mm-hmm. to want to associate it with something that's ancient and profound and metaphysical. Um, so yeah. I would, I would say, you know, that we should not, uh, you know, a follower of Jesus should not perceive Silicon Valley's openness to ideas as an enemy. I think that I think there's an opportunity there. Um, another you know, that, that speaks yeah. to a little bit of what you mentioned in your sermon that you were uh, hoping to be applauded or at least encouraged with your departure um, from yes, the right, Midwest, yeah. coming yeah. out here to Stanford to study, and instead you got. Shocks, yeah, audible, audible gasps. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And right, and it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that we we have this this inherently negative attitude uh, towards being out here. Um, I was at an Asian American uh, Christian conference uh, a couple months ago, where uh, I think um, I think it was in Redwood City, and one of the areas of discussion was this intriguing phenomenon. Like to be to be an Asian American uh, in uh, in the Bay Area and to also be a Jesus follower, um, a lot of the people there came from or their family came from a Buddhist background, um, but but now they were Christians. And the, uh, the panelists were talking about just reflecting on the ways that Buddhism – uh, is seen as like intriguing and interesting mm. and worth thinking through for a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are otherwise kind of turned off of religion in general um, or are just very like very scientifically minded and how Christianity kind of doesn't get that same uh, same uh, reception and uh, and they're just t- kind of thinking about like so what is it what happens with the way Silicon Valley people think of Buddhism that that doesn't immediately invite hostility mm. in the way that maybe Christianity does. And I think like to think through that compare and contrast is really helpful. Mm. And, um, you know, there's some obvious ways that you could think of, like a lot of people out here feel like they've already heard the Jesus story yeah. and that it is yeah. one of you know, harshness and judgmentalism and exclusivity. Whereas a lot of times there's just this lack of knowledge uh, about Buddhism and the the little bits that they know, even if they think are far-fetched or weird, they just seem intriguing or There's almost a romanticism. Exa- exactly. It, right? That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And, um, and so what I would say is, I mean, to me, there are things about the Jesus movement that are beautiful and fascinating and intriguing and confusing and wild that, that are absolutely worth sharing uh, and, and exploring. And, uh, and I'm also very upfront to say that, uh, you know, the, the Christianity that you have no interest in hearing about is one that I don't either. And, you know, we, we start from that premise and. There's been several Christian theologians that have been famous for saying, uh, tell me about this God you don't believe in. That's right, yeah. And they say, well, you're you're halfway to being a Christian. That's right, yeah, yeah. Because I don't believe in that God either, right? Exactly, yeah. uh, That is really 
um, really, really helpful. I think your approach to that is um, contrary to what some sentiment that just lives and perpetually festers itself within Christian thinking that in order to be a Christian or to be a follower of God or to be a follower of Jesus, you're, there there has to be this anti-something right. in order to substantiate your own faith. And so um, if there's any philosophy that seems to undermine or a philosophy that seems to think differently about metaphysics or the natural world or all those different types of things, there's an immediate uh, anti or or an against that right. to substantiate your own faith. It's almost a way of like um, bolstering your own identity, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, totally. So it's um, that's that's uh, that's a whole other. <laughs> that's it all is other right, level. but yeah. So my uh, next question is actually interesting to ask you because of what you just said. Because part of um, what it has appeared, at least I think, to some is that America specifically is becoming more secular, mm-hmm. or this is the phraseology that I hear, um, that faith denominations specifically are losing adherents, they're losing members. Uh, the rise of a population that explicitly categorizes themselves as atheist seems to be growing, at least from demo- from the demographics I've read. So I guess question number one, is that true, mm-hmm. um, given your uh work and understanding. And number two, if if it is true or if it isn't true, um, how how do we understand well if it is true, how do we understand that it is happening? What what kind of insights might you have regarding what is causing that? Maybe that's you know Christianity's reputation, et cetera. And if it's not true, then why am I talking about this? Sure, <laughs> like, yeah, why yeah. why is there that perception? Right. I suppose. Yeah. Um, now that that one is is a great question, and it also lends itself to data or you know an empirical mm. answer because right, right. we we can know some of some of those things. Um, so it is. I, I I agree with you that I think there's definitely the idea out there that America is becoming increasingly secular or rapidly secular. And um, I mean, there, so there's a couple data points that I think uh, could help anchor our thoughts around whether we think that's true or not. One is that um, over the last 70 years of surveys that track these kinds of questions over that kind of period of time, um, over the last 70 years, the number of people, uh, the, sorry, the percentage of people who believe in God or who say they do in a survey uh, has dropped from 96% back in the 1940s to all the way to 89% <laughs> today. Mm-hmm. So it's only dropped 7% mm-hmm. in 70 years. Mm-hmm. And sure, it is dropping. And if you look at the data, you see it's steady decline. But, you know, we're, it's n- nothing close to... Um, you know, a rapidly secularizing uh, country. And similarly, uh, the the percentage of Americans who are atheists, it has doubled just in the last like decade or so. Uh, but even then, you know, if I were to ask what percentage of Americans do you think are atheists, mm. I think people would be shocked to, to know that about a decade ago it was one and a half percent mm. and now it's three percent. Mm. So it has doubled. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's still... Uh, that's a relatively small um, portion of our population. And uh, what what does seem to be growing a lot is what 
uh, sociologists of religion called the nuns. So those are the so the people in a survey when you ask them what religion are you, you provide them several choices and they're standard ones like Christianity, uh, Islam, so on, and uh, and there's an option none and or no religious affiliation and that you should say N O N. Correct. Not and, N-U-N, who not I, I imagine are, are as spiritual as ever. <laughs> uh, no, the, the N-O-N-E's are, are – they are growing. So they, they grew by uh, I think it's something like um, 10 percent in the last uh, 10 years or so, something like that. And, um, and so even then I think so, – so people hear about that and they say, oh, wow, the, the number of – the percentage of people who are uh, religiously unaffiliated are growing. And that sure enough in survey questions like that, that is the – fastest growing group religious mm. group on that list is the nuns and uh you know people might conclude wow that's evidence of rapid secularization but when you actually dissect those nuns and you see what's going on the picture is far more yeah. complicated than that um some nuns are they go to church regularly mm. and religion they report saying that religion is very important to them mm. and some nuns don't go to church at all and mm. uh religion is not important to them uh only a fraction of those nuns are atheists, so that less than a third say that they're atheists. And even among atheists, Reza Aslan just pointed this out in a in a talk recently. He reminded us that uh, uh, athe- like ten uh, percent of atheists in those surveys say they believe in God. Hmm. And uh, and we also know, too, that some of the people who say they belong to a religion wow. in those surveys don't believe in God yeah. and they report that. And so, you know, it's just it's a it's a messy, complex picture. Um, and and so. Right. So I think that's I I have backed off a narrative to say that, uh, you know, it's yeah. it's a uh, it's rapidly becoming secular. Um, you but know, yeah. that narrative can be so damaging to your own faith journey oh, too yeah, right absolutely. I mean, you can get so distracted with that that's right because right. if you feel if you feel yourself disenfranchised from the the standard religious institutions that mm-hmm. we have today then you know if you buy into the story then you must think well the place that i belong is not believing at all right. uh, but obviously that's not true there's right. there's plenty of people who are disengaged from religious institutions who are still very open right. to uh to thinking r- religiously or spiritually um, and we, we do, we perpetuate that, that, uh, myth. Um, and I think it's because we tend to present it as a simple either, or either right. you can trust in God for all of your answers, or you can trust in science. And, uh, and that's it. Well, there might be another psychological effect. Um, you know, it's not so much the position, but it's the direction. So if yeah. there's a decline, even if it's like 2%, sure, 3%, yeah. just merely the movement itself can right. cause somebody to maybe, totally. you know, yeah. And, and it's even, it's, you know, it's okay to say, I mean, I, I, if somebody asked me to predict whether that trend of atheists in this country will continue, I would say sure. Yeah. So yeah, I, I do think it's increasing, but I think that it would be short sighted to just say that that's indicative of just a lack of interest in this country right. in spiritual or religious things. Right. I think you were going to say something earlier and I cut you off. No, no, I think that, so it was just to, to your point that um, you asked like, so if it's not, if it's not like a rapidly secularizing world, then how did, how do we feel this way? And why are we talking about that? And I think right. that's what it is. It's this, right. it's these, these binary narratives right. that, that we, we lay out. And this is something we talked about um uh, after my lesson itself in the Q and A at church, where 
we were talking about issues like complex science and religion type issues mm -hmm. like the theory of evolution mm -hmm. that often get portrayed in binary terms. And a lot of people just get lost in the mm -hmm. middle thinking that because they don't neatly fit into either of the two major right. camps, then they, they must not belong mm -hmm. and they disengage. Okay. So, so given all of this, what do you think Paul would say or do? We have a pretty decent account of what he did in the Areopagus. Mm -hmm. So what would he do if he showed up at Stanford and Silicon Valley? Sure, yeah. How would you, what would be your imaginative way in which the movement of Jesus, and I suppose I'm asking not just for the exercise of being imaginative, but really the imagination of what Paul would do hopefully informs then those of us who are followers of Jesus, who are committed to this way and living in this world, trying to learn from our predecessors tried to learn from, you know, our forefathers, sure. what, what they would do. And yeah, you know. well, you know, one of the things that stands out to me is when Paul, when he starts out that sermon, he says, I, I perceive that you're very religious. Mm. Uh, I actually, I don't think that that, that uh, opening line would, would have to change if he was in Silicon Valley. I mean, I think it would be something like, I perceive that you're, you're very open to, mm. to new ideas mm. or very open to spiritual ideas, uh, as evidenced by your, your many uh, gurus and um, you know, medita pra meditation practices and mindfulness mm -hmm. uh, workshops and all of that. And I think that, uh, to me, one of the things I think he could tap into in our culture is, um, you know, because Silicon Valley can be uh, almost worship technology is like the ability to save us all from from everything that's wrong with us. And it can it can be a very cutthroat, competitive place mm. where people's lives are their careers. And it leaves a lot of people thinking um, is that all there is? Is that all there is to life? Is that all there is to like what I'm doing on earth? I think he could very much uh, just tap into that mm. to say that, you know, I, I, I know that, that you think about these things yeah. and I do too. And, you know, it'd be, you know, where he makes the connection in the sermon at the Areopagus is that I want to make known to you uh, this God that, that you've been thinking about and worshiping. I think similarly, he would say, I, you know, he has some thoughts on the subject mm -hmm. of whether, whether this is all there is, whether there's more to life than just your career and right. whether there's something outside yourself. I think that can be like a fruitful area um, to begin discussion. I want to ask you about transhumanism, but I think I should save that for another day. <laughs> that I mean, that could that could be getting uh, more off topic. I, we'll, we'll save that for another day because yeah. I think I I resonate with what you're saying, but the voice that's in my head is science and technology is at least living by the narrative that we'll soon be able to overcome oh, sure. even that. Right, right. right. And yeah. I think that's the. I don't know what to think about that yet. Sure, right? that that seems to have a whole bunch of implications that I haven't, I have yet to digest and try right. to figure out. But you know, I already told you I finished reading Homo Deus by right. uh, Harari, and uh, of course others. Um, and you know, when I <laughs> when I was a kid, I saw this little cartoon where somebody in the mail bought this little device that had little forks in it and a little antenna, and you would take it, you'd stick it in the back of your head, just drill it in nice. there, and you could drive your remote control car around, right? right. Very uh, matrixy, even. Well, yeah. very, like, uh, and I thought, oh, that would be so cool to control a remote control car with my mind, right. and I wouldn't have to have a, it just be plugged into my brain. Right. Well, you can do that now, right? right? With yeah. an external EEG machine, you know, wired up to read your 
read all of the stuff that's going on to actually literally control right. a remote control car. So all of these things that were previously science fiction are now becoming science fact and they have all sorts of implications regarding who we are as humans and even the question of meaning and purpose totally and yeah like that. so that's for another time yeah yeah, yeah. Those okay are well worth thinking about yeah omer thank you i really appreciate it oh it's my pleasure we'll do this again sometime you got it thanks for the opportunity mm-hmm.